the deal market to me is still the multiples I'm seeing, I think are still crazy. There's many things that we wouldn't even come close to touching because there's so much private equity money in the business that they're just trying to get deals done and they're trying to drive assets and they're believing they're going to combine all these firms to a bigger multiple and a bigger tomorrow. But I worry about it in our space because I worry that there's a lot of private equity firms kind of trading deals together and, you know, musical chairs eventually, if you play it, eventually you end up without a chair. And I just worry for the industry that you're going to have a lot of firms get stuck because the multiples just don't make sense. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out of the box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind the scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Jay Hummel is the co-founder of Wealth Alliance Growth Network, Wagon. Prior to founding Wagon, Jay was the senior vice president and head of American Centuries Investment Personal Financial Solutions business. Jay was responsible for the strategic and educational oversight of teams serving 600,000 individual and small retirement clients with a $40 billion in assets under management. He's a former managing director of InvestNet, where he served as head of strategic initiatives and thought leadership. Jay is a former president and chief operating officer of Lennox Wealth Management, a Cincinnati-based multifamily office, and started his career in accounting and consulting at Deloitte. Jay is a frequent industry speaker and writer. Wiley has published two of his books, Success and Succession, and The Essential Advisor. Jay lives in Kansas City with his wife, Valerie, and when he's not uh, traveling, which many of us haven't been <laughs> much lately, he and Valerie stay very busy with their seven and five-year-old sons and three-year-old daughter, Jay Hummel, welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Hey, Corey. Thanks for the great introduction, and I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Listen, you know, uh, I've had the pleasure of uh, working with you on some stuff. I know you have, uh, you know, this amazing uh, background as it relates to deals and, of course, in the RIA space, and we're going to get into all of that. But I want to take you back first. And when you were a little kid growing up, 8, 10, 12 years old, what did you want to be? Because my guess is, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I didn't know anything about the RA space and it really didn't exist in the way we know it now when we were kids. So I, I doubt it was that. <laughs> so tell me what no, it, was. it was. It was definitely not that. I actually, I knew I wanted to be in business. I always knew that. When I was eight, I would put on a tie. My dad was a banker. So this will age, you know, the timeline, but he'd put on Old Spice in the morning, put on a suit and tie, go off to work at Fifth Third Bank. I would put on a clip-on tie put on some Old Spice, put change in my pocket so that my change would jingle in my pocket. And I would go sit at the dining room table with a calculator and a notepad and just play with numbers. And so I always kind of knew I would be in business. I didn't know what it was going to be. And so when I came out of grad school, being an accountant seemed like a good start. That's great. And however you define this, whatever comes to memory, whether it was when you were a kid or later in life, what was your first real deal of any type? So I was five to six years old. It's become family lore in the Hummel family. I don't remember it specifically as much. 
my grandfather was the president of a company they had just sold, you know, obviously, you know, in the early to mid eighties, there were a lot of Japanese companies coming and sure. buying companies. And so they had sold to a Japanese firm. And so it's 1985, you know, technology wasn't what it was today. And they had given my grandfather a pyramid clock that you could press the top button and a lady would come on and tell you what time it was. <laughs> so, I mean, I just thought that was the most amazing thing. And so I negotiated trying to buy it at a picnic table at a grill out. And I started with the normal, well, you know, that's a great clock, Grandpa. You know, I really like your clock. He said, well, thank you. Then I finally apparently offered him $5 and asked him what it would take to take it off his hands. Um, <laughs> and I don't know how you learn that language when you're a five or six-year-old, but it became lore. And I think that was my first deal. And I learned that you got to be willing to fail because I didn't get the clock. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You know, it was, it was funny. I was just recording a podcast where I was the guest earlier today. It, somebody asked me about the guests I have on and how much we do talk about failure. And, and I said, well, yeah, it comes up on every, every podcast because all of us have had it. And that's where, you know, where we learn some of the lessons. So that's totally great. So before we talk about, you have a rich sort of deal history and there's a lot of places we can go. But just give you know, we mentioned obviously your co-founder of, of Wagon. Uh, just let folks know, for the ones who don't, what Wagon does in the RA space. Yeah, so we're a consulting firm as well as a deal firm. And really simply, what we're looking to do is to power the best wealth management shops in the future that are going to continue to serve clients in a way the wealth management space is changing drastically, as you know, with technology and customer demands and artificial intelligence. So we're looking to take minority stakes and become operating partners and not only probably eight to 10 wealth management shops regionally throughout the US, but also minority shareholders in great service providers. So we have uh, three minority stakes in, in service providers that serve the wealth management space. And we just believe we can create this ecosystem of great people, all trying to bring, bring better outcomes to their clients and trying to stay ahead of the technology curve. I love it. So I want to sort of continue down on that front, but let's go back a little bit because let's get some of your deal-making history so people can, uh, you know, understand more what you're bringing to this venture and this new space and what you've been in for a while, you know, the investment advisory space. But you have a history of doing deals before you really got into this space. So tell us about that. Well, I got really lucky. My first real job was I was 19 years old interning summer after my freshman year in college got the opportunity to work for a billionaire family in Cincinnati, Ohio, the Lindner family who owned Chiquita Bananas at the time, the Cincinnati Reds, Great American Insurance, a lot of great asset and had two really great mentors. I worked for their CFO as well as their general counsel, a guy named Jim Kennedy, and they were doing a lot of great deals. You know, this was sort of 98, 99, 2000 when I was there, pre-dot-com bubble, and they were buying everything from amusement parks to transportation companies to rolling up insurance companies and they were so gracious and it's why I hopefully am trying to pay it forward in the future. I know you do it with young up and comers is, you know, I'm 19 years old. I had no right to be in the room. They basically said, you can read anything you want. You can sit in the room and learn, but just, you know, know how to keep your mouth shut. That's the only rule and make sure confidential things aren't being leaked. And so they were so gracious to give me an opportunity, and that's where I became very passionate about deal making. Was getting to see all the things that they could do. All right, you're young, you're a sponge, soaking it all up. What are some of the last, you know, lessons, uh, whether it was, you know, based upon successes or failures or challenges that you know that stuck with you all these years later from that experience? What I always really respect Mr. Lindner for at the time was I really learned was you know you never take anybody to the wall in a deal mm. because the world's a small place. Yeah. And, you know, there were a lot of times where our side had the cards 
and where we really could have pushed a deal. And I remember actually asking him one time when we got some one-on-one time, you know, what was the lesson that he wanted to impart on somebody like me? And that was it, which is, you know, just because you have the cards doesn't mean you play them. And you never know when you're the one sitting on the other side of the same table with the same people, and maybe you don't have the advantage. And so his rule, and I learned it from a number of other mentors, is, you know, winning isn't taking the person on the other side to the wall, because you never know when you might be on the other side of the table from the same person in the future. Yeah, I love that lesson. I so believe in it. And I think anybody who's a true successful dealmaker over time, you know, learns that if they don't just come in to dealmaking that way. And one of the things I always say, especially in business, right? I always say, listen, every negotiation in business is, or most of them are either the start of a new relationship or the continuation of an existing relationship, right? Uh, and in those cases, you know, so yeah, even if you beat somebody down, well, are you really going to get the true kind of service partnership? Are they going to try to be looking to get back on the back end somehow? And then, yeah, you'll find, even in the deals that are sort of one off, I mean, yeah, things, what goes around comes around. And like you said, it's a small industry. People get reputations. I mean, I know people who've used leverage to beat up people on, on a couple of few deals and then nobody wants to do deals with them anymore. Yeah. I mean, you got to, those people, I was lucky enough at 19 years is they always took the long view. It wasn't about tomorrow. It was about 5, 10, 15, 20 years to me. And I learned that, which is there's a lot of people out doing deals. Obviously, there's certain deals where you do on a short-term basis because it financially makes sense. That's why I'm glad I'm not at a public company. I've spent my time you know, in plenty of public companies. Having to do that quarter-to-quarter earnings thing was tough. And so you know, being able to sit and say, we're making deals that are good for everybody for a five to 10 to 15 year runway, that's employees, that's clients, that's partners. That's what I enjoy about being out of the public side and being more on the private side. Love it. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to join our DealQuest community group on Facebook. There, you'll have a chance to engage with other entrepreneurs, business owners, executives, and leaders who are looking to grow, do deals, and make a bigger impact. In addition to the great content and community, you can also register there for our conversations, community, and cocktail Zoom calls and the upcoming Deal Den Zoom calls during which you will have the opportunity to brainstorm and get support with deal-driven growth for your company. Now back to the show. Anything else uh, from past deal experience that, um, you know, good stories or lessons that you've learned before we get to more of the stuff we're doing now? You know, I think the other thing really quickly that I learned again is I think you got to sort of understand what you're trying to do when you sit at the table. I think a lot of times people get at the table wanting to do a deal and they're not clear about what outcome they want for what reason. That's where I've seen deals fail. And, you know, we started the other thing, which you mentioned, we don't need to belabor it. You know, I know you've talked about it a lot on this podcast is you got to be willing to lose and you got to be willing to fail because you're in the game you're not going to get every deal. And there's been a few deals that I was really bummed about that didn't work, right? When I was on the team or I was leading the way and I was really bummed about it in the first sort of two weeks after it didn't work. You know, it's funny when I reflect back on those deals, it's probably for the better right? that they didn't work out. And I think that's something I've really reflected on in the, in the last couple of years. Yeah. That ability, you know, in my authentic negotiating book, it's the second of my fundamental principles, which is, you know, it's, it's the D, uh, clarity, detachment, and equilibrium. It's the detachment. 
It's the ability to say, hey, you know, yes, I have a preference the deal gets done, but, you know, if it doesn't, it doesn't happen, you know, it's for a reason to trust that, you know, we'll do something later or we'll, we won't or I'm not meant to do a deal with you right now. And every great negotiator and deal maker, I think, you know, gets that perspective. So it's great. So now with Wagon, I mean, you know, you've got a bunch of stuff going on in that you take minority positions in investment advisory firms and service providers. So that's a deal. You have a minority partner in your business, which is, you know, is has been publicly discussed, so I, I don't hesitate to bring it up. And then, you know, you have this other aspect of helping the firms on your platform grow through deals, whether it's onboarding, you know, deals of advisors, uh, you know, we've worked on some of that together, you know, M&A down the line and things like that. So talk to us about some of those aspects of the deals that are surround Wagon right now. Yeah, so first is kind of capital formation when we started the company. And we were very, very lucky that we had a lot of people lining up with money and capital. And that really wasn't what we weren't looking for capital, right? I mean, capital was one aspect of it. But to us, having the right partners around the table was important to us. And I think that was good deal principles that we, John and I learned when we were younger is, you know, we were willing to dilute, not because we needed the capital, but because we thought being smaller piece, and we call each other out on this all the time. I think the best deal people on, over the long run are smaller piece of bigger pie people. And so we were very, very lucky to have five great shareholders. One, as you know, being the lead institutional shareholder is Merchant out of New York, a multifamily office who's making a lot of interesting bet in the financial services space. But it was just deal making 101 with those guys. The reason we saw eye to eye is to me, if you're going to be partners in a business, whether to get a deal done or not get a deal done, you have to have a shared vision of what the future needs to look like, not only for your company, but the industry you play in. And Merchant and John and I had a very clear aligned vision of where the wealth management and financial service space was going and what we wanted to do at Wealth Advisor Growth Network. So, you know, people always talk alignment. I use the word a lot. I think it come a little bit cliche. So sometimes I hate that I use it because it sounds just so obvious, yeah. but it can be hard when you're doing a deal, especially in a minority stake deal to make sure that you're aligned because you're sitting on the minority side and you can put all the controls in and have a great attorney like you to sort of do that. But it just, it leads to problems when you can't have a shared vision. Sure. And talking about shared vision and business partnerships, I mean, the first, before you even brought in the investors, you've mentioned, you've said John a few times. And let's, for those who don't know, he's talking about John Phoenix, who uh, is his uh, co-founder who came together and then brought in the capital partners. So, I mean, the first deal is, right, you, I mean, you and John have some history together, you know, but you guys decided to launch this thing, right, and go into business together. That's a deal right there, even even not counting the capital partners. Yeah, we were kind of nuts in some ways. We had a great job at American Century Investments running their direct-to-consumer business. John was running all of institutional sales for InvestNet, you know, the largest independent financial advisor technology platform play. John and I met 10 years ago. I was John's first client when he sold his RA and came to InvestNet. So a deal ultimately led to him being an InvestNet and us coming together. And then we ended up on the senior leadership team at InvestNet together. But we had always sort of believed that we wanted to run a business together. I had actually just turned 40. John had turned 50. And we just kind of looked at it and said, we looked at the market. We could stay where we were. We were very happy where we were doing the things that we were doing. But we just, as you and I have talked before, Corey, you know, a lot of deals and formations is a lot, not necessarily about intelligence or skill set that has to be a part of it, but it's timing. We really felt like the marketplace for what we wanted to build as it relates to Wagon 
it was the right time to do it. And we felt like the window was going to close on us. So John called me up one day and said, hey, let's go do this. And we were crazy enough to jump off the cliff together last October. And, you know, we've gotten four deals done since. So it's been been a good start. It's great. And uh, and on um, at least one of those deals, which we work with you on, uh, you, they've subsequently done a uh, an onboarding deal and added some additional advisors, right? Which is another kind of deal. Yeah. So ours, you know, we obviously invest in wealth management firms. So we invested in a firm called Elk River Wealth Management in Denver. It was probably one of the hardest deal decisions, at least in my career, we've ever made. You were a part of it because we were prepared. You know, we were ready to build this advisor, break him out of, a, of a, his existing relationship and build an entirely new firm. It was seven months in the making and the break date, the date we were getting ready to launch was March 20th. <laughs> Which, you know, now ironic, you know, every entrepreneur has a good, hopefully a good foundation formation story. You know, ours now is that that's the bottom of the equity markets, you know, the day we decided. And that was a real struggle as we planned, we planned, we're ready. Do we go, right? Does the uncertainty get in the way of, of what we could do? Do we shoulder on and just continue to go? And we made a 100% certain call, which is we were ready and clients needed what we were going to build. They needed it more than ever, given market volatility and the things that were going on in the world. And so on March 20th, we decided to start the firm and we've done three acquisitions since and on our way to hopefully by the end of the year, building a billion dollar firm, which to your listeners, you know, billion dollar independent firm, there's only 330 of those types of firms in the country. When there's 33,000 independent firms in the country, only 350 of them have gotten north of a billion. And so we might be able to get there in, in just short of 10 months. So far, so good. Which is amazing. And, you know, and, and the thing is, I mean, there's so much in that. I mean, one is just the entrepreneurial story, right? And yeah, and you, you're right. Like that origin story, it becomes a chapter in the book eventually, right? And then also, I mean, obviously this, the market, the people who might be listening to this way down the line on replay, the days of COVID, and that was the market drop that happened, you know, during the pandemic. You know, and then there were, you know, there's even questions, which we've actually found with all the teams that we've broken during the pandemic that for most teams has actually worked out great. You know, like even, well, is this the right time? Not only the, even when the market recovered, like during a pandemic. And I think what a lot of teams are finding is that their clients are much easier to, you know, to contact because they're home. They're not, they're not well, Europe. You they're know, not that's when I called you and there. had that aha. I woke up, I'm not, I'll never forget it. I woke up at 3 a.m., dawned on me in the deals you and I have done together. Hardest two things get the client's attention and get them to return paperwork. Um, <laughs> right. And and I don't know, you never want to chase a bad deal. Right? And I've seen people, it's so hard when you're in the top of the ninth inning and you've worked so hard to get there and the deal terms change or the situation changes. I've done it in my life. You know, it's the whole sunk cost argument. And yeah. it's so hard to say no to. And the times that I've talked myself into doing the deal at the top of the ninth, just because that's the easier thing to do. They haven't worked. And so I was worried about that when we were right, thinking right. about that. Is that this situation? Am I in that situation now? Yeah. And so that's, right. to me, it's always the first eight innings are hard, but the, the ninth inning's the hardest. And you never want to chase a bad deal because it got away from you. But I also believe that if you have the right vision over the long run for why you're starting a company, and we were very passionate that we had started that company for the right reason in the Denver market, that in the short run, if it didn't work, in the long run, it would work. We also thought from a deal standpoint, if you hit the pause button, what metric do you use to decide that you're going to go? 
Is it the stock market? Is it the talk with the clients? So I've always worried about you hit the pause button on a deal. You better be very clear as to why you hit the pause button and what's going to make you hit the play button again. Or otherwise you just end up in this limbo land that just ultimately ends to a lot of pain for everybody. So let's talk about a little bit, you know, the landscape in financial services and wealth management in terms of the deal front, whether it's M&A, tuck-ins, onboarding deals for advisors. You know, we are in strange times. I was about to preview with my experience, but I don't want to do that. I want to hear it from you. So, you know, what are you seeing out there in terms of deal flow, in terms of the impact of, uh, you know, some of the pandemic or anything? Uh, you know, what's happening right now? Well, I think it's good that the market recovered, right? Obviously, you know, most of the firms that we're investing in and part of, they get paid assets under management fees. So when assets go down, it's bad for everybody. I do think we're finally starting to see, obviously, you mentioned up front, we studied succession significantly five years ago. We wrote that book for Wiley on succession. And we always kind of felt like there would be a day for a decade, people have talked about it, right? <laughs> you know, Mark Hurley <laughs> talked about it 10 years ago. Yeah. People yeah. thought he was Darth Vader. You know, oh my God, small firms are never going to make it. There's going to be this succession thing. I do think we finally have hit that point, you know, with the, you know, the industry of the average, there's different metrics, whether you look at Cirilli or, or others, Tiburon or any of those, anywhere between the average RA owners between 59 and 63. Yeah. So we finally have hit that point, I think, where they have to make tough decisions about do they continue the firm to a second generation leadership team? which is a big problem because you know, most of your listeners, to get a deal done in a lot of ways requires, especially if, if you got someone who's selling out, you need a successor leadership team. Otherwise, the valuations make no sense for, for what you're buying. And there's such a lack of successor talent today totally. um, in financial services and wealth management. I think a lot of that came from the downturn in 01 and then again in 8, 9, and 10. So many of the firms got rid of their training programs. So you know, I think the deal market to me is still the multiples I'm seeing, I think are still crazy. There's many things that we wouldn't even come close to touching because there's so much private equity money in the business that they're just trying to get deals done and they're trying to drive assets and they're believing they're going to combine all these firms to a bigger multiple and a bigger tomorrow. But I worry about it in our space because I worry that there's a lot of private equity firms kind of trading deals together and, you know, musical chairs, eventually, if you play it, eventually you end up without a chair. And I just worry for the industry that you're going to have a lot of firms get stuck because the multiples just don't make sense. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I've uh, various times been interviewed in some of the industry press and often talk about deal discipline, right? You know, and how and a lot of, I mean, listen, there's been some great things about all the capital that's come into this space because there was a time, I mean, only about seven, eight years ago where there wasn't a lot of, you know, whether it was equity capital, lending, you know, I mean, you know, when did LiveMook start up? Maybe about eight years ago, something like that, you know, and then you got, you know, others, Oak Tree and Sky View Partners now, whatever. But, you know, on the lending side, on the significant private equity, you know, now, of course, you have some, some of the firms focus, financial and others have gone public. That wasn't around eight years ago for the most part. And so there's been a lot of positive that's come into place where there's financing available for deals and internal succession. But, you know, when there is a lot of capital that has to be deployed, especially with private equity, yeah, there is that risk of, of getting past deal discipline and certainly with public companies. It was interesting to me to see an industry interview recently with Rudy Adolph from Focus, who talked about pulling back on Focus doing deals, you know, even with public money because he thought valuations were getting crazy. Yeah, their model's interesting, right? You know, at the end of the day, even as a public company, you're, you're playing, look, at the end of the day, deals are arbitrage, nothing more than that. And so yeah. 
can I make a better return than my cost of capital? And when you look at the cost of capital game out there, even with interest rates low, the cost of capital spread for the returns you can get for the multiples. I mean, you're seeing billion dollar firms that are growing okay, right? Not growing into the listeners that maybe aren't our space, Corey, you know, billion dollar, I'm, I'm talking not revenue, I'm talking um, in assets under management. So most billion dollar firms are going to charge about 80 basis points for their top line revenue. So you're still only talking about, you're talking about a small business, right? At, mm-hmm. at $8 million in top line revenue, generally at about a 45 to 50 margin if a firm like that's running well. So let's just say on the low end, 40 margin. So you're talking about 3.2 million in EBITDA. Some of those firms are trading at eight to 10 times earnings. Some of them I've seen go at 12. So you take a business like that with the cost of capital and the math you got to do, and then you likely have to transition the clients because you're likely buying out an advisor who's really in between one year and three years of transitioning out. It's tough for me with my, I said, maybe I'm just too classically trained on the deal (laughs) side. Maybe I'm too numbers oriented in the way I've been trained, but I just don't know how you make that math work. Let's segue that back to the model that you are, you know, building a wagon, which we talked about a little bit. You know, there are aggregators out there, right? That are looking to aggregate and go public or aggregate and, you know, get higher multiples and sell. There are other sort of platform service providers out there. Talk a little bit more about, I mean, I know we talked already about taking minority positions, which is actually something that, you know, somewhat unusual in the space. You know, what are the other sort of differentiators for way? Yeah, so one is size. I mean, we get put in the quote unquote aggregator category. You know, that's fine for people to put us there. I don't really put us in that category because to me, sort of aggregators implies you want to go do a lot of deals and you sort of kind of roll things up. Our premise is there's a lot of great models out there, but when we were traveling around, you know, John and I, between the last decade have been visited collectively with over, we did the math, you know, a few months ago with over 1200 firms. So in talking to those firms, they not only wanted capital, but they wanted capabilities. And so when we studied why do firms not grow, most firms don't grow because they don't have their capital structure right. They don't spend their time right. It's hard for a, even a $500 million firm in AUM that's doing $4 million in top line revenue. And that advisor and his, her, her team are constantly serving clients. They weren't lucky enough to have the expertise that you and John and I, we've seen a lot, right? Just because of, of where we've sat. And so for us to bring that expertise to say, we've visited 1,200 firms, right? We're not only just going to bring capital, but we're going to be partners in your business, right? When you look up Elk River Wealth, you know, the first RA big deal that we did, when you look on their website, John and I are there. We're on the website. We're true partners in the business. And we're taking phone calls on payroll and recruiting. I interviewed candidates last week for the head of director of planning for Elk River, Like we want to be in it. And so our value proposition is we've been there, we've run firms, we've done it, we've sold firms, we've visited 1,200 firms over the last 10 years. We feel like we have a good view of the world on how to grow a firm. And so we want to bring capital. And the only reason we bring capital is we want to put our money where our mouth is. We want people to know that we're all in and then we want to sit at the table with you. And so our goal is not to go be we don't want to be, you know, many of the aggregators out there. We don't want to have 100 firms that we're affiliated with. We don't really want to have 50 firms. A success story for us is over the next, you know, five years, we have five firms that we're deeply affiliated with. 
and they ultimately feel like we're great partners and that we we're sitting on the same side of the table with them. And those five firms have grown, right? Right. Organically and through deals, you know, a time, which is what you've already done with, with Elk River in such a short period of time. That's definitely, you know, a, a differentiator. And, you know, as you know, I work with a lot of different folks in, in the industry. And, you know, I remember when you guys launched this, I, I said, uh, there's a place in the market for this. And it's and, and obviously, you know, you two guys come with, and your partners uh, come with a lot of uh, industry experience and a background to bring to it, which is great. We'll see. You know, it's funny being a deal person like you and, and the listeners. You know, there's a lot of people that look at us and say, you know, you're thinking too small, mm-hmm. uh, right? And, you know, we got offered some really big money when we started Wagon for people to want us to become another big aggregator. And, you know, maybe John and I are still young guys. Maybe our uh, second chapter of this will be that. But we just, to your point, we felt like there was a big gap in the marketplace look, we're not, we're deal guys. We're not running a nonprofit. We got to do extremely well with this. We got to do good for our shareholders. We think right now there's a boutique nature that's missing in the industry. Yeah. Uh, and we're willing to take the risk that we can be that boutique option. Yeah. It's, it's interesting for me because it raises this conversation that I have sometimes on the podcast, but, but a lot more sort of just in the general entrepreneurial world, whether it's with my wealth management clients or, you know, clients we have in other industries. You know, I was very active for many years in, in entrepreneurs organization. And, you know, there is this sort of default to you have to grow, you got to get big, right? You know, that's the default sort of, you know, way of being in the entrepreneurial world where, you know, size and growth and rapid acceleration is sort of the default measures of success. I've always questioned that. Not that there's anything wrong with that if that's truly what you want to accomplish, right? Whether it's, I mean, take it out of the financial services space, to, you know, take like, you know, a tech company. I always say, you know, I've, I've had this conversation, which my listeners have heard me raise that I believe every business should be a lifestyle business. That's not like a curse or a negative, but you know, you could have like, meaning that if you're an entrepreneur starting your company, why are you starting it? If not to fulfill the vision and the dream and have the life you want and, you know, for yourself and your family and your employees and your, you know, and your clients. And for some folks that is building a, a high growth, you know, shooting to have a, uni- a tech unicorn, right? Where you're going to raise all kinds of rounds of capital and go public. And for others, you know, that's having a, you know, a very nice wealth management firm where you can do a few hundred million dollars and make more money than most people and live a great life. Right. And there's nothing, you know, there's no, nothing inherently right or wrong. Like I think the big is seen almost like a default to be right. And for me, you know, I've seen people become dissatisfied that way. And, you know, having that self-awareness and knowledge on what you really are called to build and whatever that looks like, I think it's much more important than some artificial pressure to grow we've looked at it is you can always go boutique and go big, assuming your partners that want to, that are along with you, you can't go big and then go be boutique. (laughs) So, you know, we do five transactions in the next five years and then our five firms that are part of what we want to do and our partners that sit alongside us say, all right, these five have gone so well that we have 30 firms waiting at the door that want us to do it. You know, then we'll revisit it. But I just, we didn't want to go big and make the mistake because I just don't think you can go back. Yeah, there's a lot of pressures in terms of deploying capital and investor expectations and speed of growth, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So totally. I want to cover one more, at least, you know, one more topic before we sort of uh, start to wrap this up. And as I'm always interested in, I mean, listen, you, you know, you've given your sort of history and obviously, you know, starting at a young age, you know, you got exposed to deal making. So that certainly helps. But, you know, I think there's sort of a mentality that people have, and some comes more naturally, some people learn it. But, you know, there are so many entrepreneurs in, in all spaces 
who don't naturally have that sort of deal making. You know, they they may be really great at what they do, at the technical part of what they do, or as you know, an investment advisor in in this space. You know, or they might be good at sales. But deal making is a particular sort of not only skill but also sort of mentality. Any thoughts on that? Like, what makes somebody a deal maker versus some other people who aren't? I think you and I have talked that before. I, I think you can learn just about anything. So I, I yeah. do think you could take somebody and sort of, you could teach them. But I, I do think people sort of, mostly people have an innate ability to it. Mm-hmm. I do think most of the great deal makers that I've seen, it comes down to temperament, right? And I think there's a weird blend of you got to be visionary because you got to be able to see how the deal comes together. And maybe it's not just one individual, but I think you, maybe it's a team aspect of this. But you got to also have the patience, patient yet urgent at the same time, yeah. um, right? Which is a weird combination, but I see the people that do that. But again, it's the temperament to not get impatient and to not take it personally. To me, you just can't be a good deal person if you think the other side's trying to slight you, right? At the end of the day, it's about generally the numbers always scares me or makes me laugh when I'm on the other side, somebody, and they say, well, Jay, it's not about the money. I'm like, okay, all right. Whoever says that usually it ends up about the money. So I just, <laughs> to me, I've always said the word, the best deal makers I've seen have the right temperament. There's a lot that comes along with that. I love that. So before I ask you my final question on the podcast, uh, I just want to give you an opportunity to let people know where they can find out more about uh, you know you and Wagon and get in contact with you if they're interested. Yeah, in certainly. Them hit Jay Hummel on LinkedIn. You know, you and I are out on LinkedIn a lot. You know, you can visit us at wagon.biz, W-A-G-N.biz. You're in the financial services or wealth space. We'd love to talk to you if we can be helpful. At the end of the day, one of the things that John and I, we actually said it this morning, I was, you know, he knew I was going to be on your thing. We were talking about deals. One of our favorite parts about starting this is the fact that we get to choose who we work with. And we've had a lot of great people reach out. And at the end of the day, Again, we're not running a nonprofit, but we started Wagon because we believe our expertise can be helpful to people and we want people to get the better outcomes. Love it. So my final question on the podcast is always about freedom because that's my highest ideal. And for me, that means everything from freedom from all people from oppression in the world to the reason I'm an entrepreneur and don't work for somebody. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? I think to me, it's being able to, and it's back to why we started Wagon. Freedom to me is being able to spend my time doing what I want to do and being surrounded by the people I want to be surrounded with. And mm-hmm. when you can maximize, you know, spending time doing what you want to do and spending it with the people that you want to be around, that's winning in my book. Love it. Jay Hummel, thank you so much for being on the Deal Quest podcast. Corey, thanks for having me, buddy. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deal Quest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. You can be a friend of the show by leaving a review on the Good Pods app podchaser.com or any major podcast player every review helps the show reach more listeners if you're ready to take your deal making to the next level by becoming a master negotiator head over to amazon or audible and grab a copy of my best-selling book authentic negotiating then connect with me on linkedin and let me know your thoughts i'm Corey kupfer until next week wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that i know your deal quest will bring